You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So I'm going to ask all of you, as we start our time in God's Word, to take out your phone, if it's not already out. And once again, we are going to give you a URL to put into your browser and to type this address in, because this is specific to this weekend's service, today's service and message. And if you have a question at any point about what we're talking about today, please make sure that you send it in to us. And as we're doing this, we're also introducing something new that we haven't done yet, that we are going to start today, is every so often we're going to make some polls accessible to you because we want to get real-time perspective and information from you on some things. So you're going to submit questions to us and we're going to ask a couple questions of you today. And here's the first question. If you sign into this URL, you will see it come up right away. Our poll question that we're going to start off with today is this. What is your marital status? Would you tell us? You'll have some options there. Click one of those, and I'm going to make that data available after we've given you some time to respond to that. And as we do that, we're also extremely aware that um, there are a number of you who, this is your first time in this series. This is your first Sunday since we have begun this sexuality series, or maybe this is your first time listening to this through our online community. And so we just want to reset some things as we dive into our passage and our topics that we're going to go through today. We've decided to do this sexuality series because if God is the creator, if he is the one who created our sexuality, then he obviously has something to say about it. And we want to devote some time here very deliberately as a church family to do just that, to steer into his word and see what he has to say together. Our foundation is God's word. We've been very deliberate about building that foundation the first two weeks of this series, and especially last week with Gary Brashear's sermon. If you didn't hear that, please go back and listen to it at some point. As always, when we gather to worship together, this is for you as the Jesus follower. If you aren't sure if you know Jesus, or if you know you have not made that decision to follow him with your life, you're more than welcome to listen in. We want you to be able to listen in here and through our online community. But please understand, we are speaking to those of us who do know and love Jesus. And the reality for all of us is that we're in process. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be in process. But with that comes some implications. As we dive into God's word, as we try to speak the truth in love, you are going to be challenged with what you think and what you believe in this series. I guarantee it. In fact, someone has said that you know you've heard from the real Jesus when you either are challenged or offended or fall at your feet in worship. There usually isn't a middle ground in between those. And we are not looking to cause unnecessary offense at all. But we are also aware that we are steering into some very personal profoundly significant issues by design with this series and we get that and we will try to speak sensitively and appropriately to that with that of course is going to come questions and that's why we've made this url available to you so you can post your questions but in follow-up to that and to build on what gary brashears mentioned last week one of the things that we're going to do in attempt to answer all these questions in some way, shape, or form is some we will speak directly to in our sermons. Gary did that last week. I'm going to do that with some questions today. But what we're going to comprehensively try to do is address all of your questions in a summary paper that we're going to be publishing here in the next couple weeks. The elders and I are going to take every single question that you've asked and try to formulate at least a bullet response to it. A number of your questions are nuanced and are by design complicated and have layers to them. We won't be able to speak to every single dimension, but we are going to try to come up with some answers to every question you've submitted to us in this series. Some of those questions we'll dive into as a, as a group when we have our discussion forums that will be coming up in a couple weeks. But with what we're going to talk about today and with what's coming our way in the next couple weeks with your questions, some of those 
we already have spoken very comprehensively to in some position papers that we've written up previously. Those are going to be available to you on our back resource table. And for our online community, you can go to those on our website and find those under documents as well. We have some of those position papers in the back for where we'll go today. Also, there are a number of you who asked really good questions last week with Gary's sermon, but they had nothing to do with sexuality. That is okay. But we want to encourage you, there is a website that is a wonderful resource to you called gotquestions.org. Please make note of that because many of the questions you're asking, you can go directly to that website and get biblical, wise, scripturally grounded answers to those questions. You don't have to wait for us to speak to those. And we just want to encourage you with that. And again, to put on your radar, our discussion forum, our first one will be October 20th. That's just a couple weeks away. It will be before this service, down the hallway in room 111, so we'll want you to come earlier that day. You can get in some of that discussion. If you choose to leave and come to the worship service, that's great. If you choose to stay there for the whole discussion, that's great too. The option's open to you, but wanted you to know about that. And that was a really long lead-in, and I appreciate that. I know this is redundant for a number of you, but every week we have folks who are new to this series, either in the room or online, and we wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page as we get started. So you ready to get started? Good. So let's see what you've said so far. Let's pull up that poll. What is your marital status? And this is who's in the room. 78% of you are married. 16% are single. 6% are divorced, and so far we don't have anyone who um, is widowed. Those first three areas, marriage, singleness, divorce, we're going to speak to here this morning. Nothing like identifying every possible pain point in someone's life and doing it in one sermon. That is not the intent of this at all. But we are going to speak very carefully very compassionately, very deliberately about all three of those areas as we dive into God's word. And we're gonna do that by going to Matthew 19. But before we do so, there is a reality that I'd like to talk about. And Gary resurfaced this last week. If you were here for Gary's sermon and if you're listening online, what's on the screen behind me is a picture of a Vitabone dog biscuit box and soy sauce. Thank you, Gary, for surfacing that again. And a number of you have been so gracious to me and my disclosure to to you. Um, At our lead event some weeks ago, someone was kind enough to put in my little gift bag some Vitabone dog biscuits and soy sauce. (laughs) Thank you. And when I got back into town this last Monday after being gone last weekend, um, here were some Scooby snacks sitting on my desk. Didn't know they made Scooby Snacks still, but they do. So thank you. You've, you've taken care of me very well. Don't feel like you've got to get me any more. <laughs> Appreciate that. And if you're going, what in the world is he talking about? You've got to go back and listen to the first sermon of this series to have some context for that. But we're going to run again with some dog biscuit stories as we go where we're going to go on this passage today. You see, as a little kid sneaking dog biscuits and soy sauce isn't my only experience with dog biscuits. Now we fast forward to my high school years when I'm dating my girlfriend who is now my wife, Jamie, and she and her family had bought evidently some dog biscuits, not unlike these Vitabone biscuits that you graciously got me, and they weren't the right dog biscuits for her dog, So she brought them to school and gave them to me and said, will your dog eat these? And my dog ate anything, and she knew that. So I said, sure, I'll go feed these to my dog. So I had these dog biscuits with me through the school day. And at this point in the year, um, it was swim season. I was on the swim team. I was captain of the swim team that year and had swim practice after um, school. So I took the dog biscuits with me because I was taking them home, and I'm Headed to swim practice with some of my friends, and these are the the two friends who I was with. And this is a picture of us back in the day, and I know I haven't aged a day. You're so gracious. Thank you. But the taller guy there in that picture, his name is Kevin Cadwell. And Kevin, great friend to this day. The other guy is David Black, great friend to this day. But Kevin in particular was very persuasive. Kevin was one of these people who could convince you of anything. I mean, he could sell an Eskimo and air conditioner, you know, and they thought they got this great deal for something they would never, ever need. And that was Kevin. Uh, He didn't go into sales, probably a good thing for all of us. He didn't. But 
He had that ability to sell you on anything. And so I'm talking to Kevin and uh, said, Kev, you know, I think there's some potential here. We've got some freshmen, some freshman guys on our team who I bet we could get to eat this. And he said, you know, you're right. And I said, well, will you help me sell it? He said, oh, yeah. And David was right there and he said, I'm in. I'll help you sell it too. So we go to swim practice. I have these dog biscuits with me and Kevin is talking to a freshman and says, hey, do you know Jay has some dog biscuits? And no. And so I pull out the box and he says, what do you have those for? I open it up and this will not surprise any of you from my earlier story. I eat one right in front of him. He says, dude, that's so gross. What are you doing? Hey man, do you know these are incredibly high in protein? You eat some of these for a couple weeks, drop two seconds off your 50 free time. <laughs> no way! Way! And so he eats them. He gets his friend and says, hey, Kevin Jay said you should eat this. I'm not eating it. I did. Oh, well, okay, I'll eat it. The entire men's swim team that day ate dog biscuits. <laughs> now, you intuitively know this. Because as we talked about in our first sermon together in this series, our deepest orientation, where we all start not just in our sexuality, but in our entire lives, is a broken one. All of us are bent apart from Jesus Christ. All of us. And so you and I, and this is what you intuitively know, didn't need to go to how to lie school in order how to tell an effective lie. We intuitively know how to do it. Do you know what every effective lie has in it? A kernel of truth. All it takes for an effective lie is to have some truth to it. Not the whole truth, some truth. Were those dog biscuits highly protein efficient? Yeah, they were. Would they drop time after your swim times? Of course not. No, freshman. But we were selling it, and they bought it. My friends, where we're going this week and next week and the week after that is we're very deliberately going to be steering into some truths that our culture is proclaiming that are actually lies about our sexuality. Our culture is proclaiming some things and saying they are true, and many of them have a kernel of truth in them, but they are lies, and they are not the path to blessing, they are the path to brokenness. And that's where we're going to go today with marriage and singleness and divorce, is we're going to look at some of those cleverly disguised lies that are being presented as truth. So as you have your phone out, would you please open another window and go to Matthew 19, which will be the text we work out of today. If you have a hardcover Bible, turn there. I'm about to do that here myself. We'll put this up on the screens as we always do. And I want you to watch as we read this passage together for what Jesus says to each of these relationships, married, single, divorced. And then we'll come back and work our way through the passage. So let's look at this very loaded, very significant, very important passage for us in Matthew 19. So Jesus is establishing himself at this point in his ministry as the Messiah. He's performed miracles. He's offered all these evidence, all these proofs that he is the promised Messiah. And there is a pretty sizable segment of the religious leaders who aren't buying it. In fact, they're not only not believing him, they're now going out of their way to discredit him and to attack him. And this is the context for what we're about to read. So when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees, religious leaders, came to him to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Well, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? 
Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said then, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only to those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So let's begin to work our way back through that. So it says that these religious leaders came to Jesus to test him. They're not just trying to test him, they're trying to trap him in a cultural debate about sexuality that was going on in that culture today. Not unlike many of the cultural debates that are happening in our culture today. There were basically two camps among the religious leaders. There was a camp of a very prominent rabbi named Hillel who advocated that a man could divorce his wife for pretty much any reason that he found. So if, by way of example, she burned his food, he was within his rights to divorce her. There was another school of thought by another prominent rabbi who was teaching, his name was Shammai, that only for infidelity, sexual um, infidelity, could a man divorce a wife. And so now they're trying to draw Jesus into this debate and forcing him to take sides and he's not going to play ball with them. In fact, he refuses to enter the debate. Instead, he takes them all the way back to the beginning, and he says, haven't you read? And really, the meta-message, what he's saying here is, you guys know better. Because no one knew the Scripture better than the religious leaders did. He said, what did God say in the very beginning and he takes their arguments and basically drops a hydrothermonuclear bomb on them. He goes DEFCON 4 and says, you guys, let's go back to the beginning. The creator made them male and female. So what is he saying there? And this pertains very directly to a question that a number of you asked, 75 of you, in our first sermon together. Are men and women created equal? That is our next poll question. Pull out your phones, go to the URL, and, and look at this. Are men and women created equal? Go ahead and put in your answer. And maybe some of you don't want to show it to the person sitting next to you or your spouse. You know, you're kind of hiding it. I'm going to say what I really think. Well, please do say what you really think because we're gonna talk about it together. So, are men and women created equal? Can we see the results of that? So, what you are saying is 78% of you, 79, it's bouncing back and forth, now it's 80, 81, wow, I'm getting good read here, are saying yes, men and women are created equal. 20 to 21% of you are saying no, they're not. Well, with any question, this highlights the need to define terms, does it not? It's kind of a trick question because there's layers to it. Are men and women created equal? Yes, they are. That is in part what Jesus is asserting here, is men and women are both made in the image of God, equally, equally valued by God, pursued by God, loved by God. If you wanna really see this specifically spelled out, you fast forward to passages like Galatians chapter three in the New Testament, which talks about how men and women are created equal and equally loved and valued by God. But if we are saying that by equality we mean the same, then the answer is an absolute no. If you're defining equality as men and women are exactly the same, that's not true at all. And Jesus is speaking to that as well. Probably a better way to say this is men and women are created equal but different. Let's test drive that. So, are men and women physiologically different? Yeah, and if you wanna talk more of that, come next week when Gary does the sermon on good sex. <laughs> well said, Matthew. 
so we are different physiologically, and not just on the outside, but also on the inside. Do you realize we have different shaped internal organs, different sized internal organs? By way of example, and these are all generalities, okay? But generally, men have larger lungs than women do. Women have larger livers than men do. And that's true of a, a number of our internal organs. Even our brains are different. Our psychology is different. One marriage coach slash expert has put it like this, that men have waffle-type brains and women have spaghetti-type brains, meaning that women, by and large, these are generalities, but by and large, women are far more effective multitaskers than men are because of the physiology of our brains. Men, by and large, tend to be more single-focused taskers, right? And when a man says, that he's thinking about nothing, he really is thinking about nothing. (laughs) One of those waffle-shaped parts of men's brains is a nothing box. And we go there sometimes. And Minnie is a young wife or sister or mother or whatever relationship to the guy in your life is who has discovered that. He really is thinking about nothing. Yeah, that's, that's a thing. Physiologically different wired brains. We also communicate differently. By and large, again, generalities, women tend to communicate for the sake of relationship. Men, by contrast, tend to communicate for sake of information. This is how this can play out. I come home at night after a a night of work, or day of work, rather, and Jamie and I are talking, and she says, how was work? And what do I say? Fine. How did your meetings go? Good. So what's tomorrow? Busy. (laughs) Now, if you're communicating for a relationship, that ain't going to fly. If you're communicating just for information, yeah, that works. Different. Equal, but different. And this is where we're going with this. We are in a culture that is working overtime to gloss over or even deny the differences between men and women and to say equal means the same. Absolutely not true. But that's where our culture goes and this has a profound implication for our sexuality because the reality is God has created and designed our sexuality and he has created and designed marriage. So let's go there. What does Jesus say in response to these Pharisees, well, first he says the Creator made them male and female, equal, both image of God, but, but different. And that is a good thing, that is a necessary thing, that was a deliberate thing. But why? Why does he make us equal but different? Well, it tells us here as we go back to what Jesus was referring to. God created mankind in his own image, In the image of God, he created them, but he gives them a mission together that they cannot do without each other. They need each other to do this, to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. What's practically being said here? What's being said is this. God makes them different so they can make more image bearers. It's really explicitly clear here, but also to fulfill The mission together, not just to have more kids, which interestingly in our culture, with where our culture continues to go with sexuality is kids are now being separated from sexuality, almost as an afterthought, almost as a bother, almost as a nuisance, when God deliberately designed man and woman to be able to make more image bearers. That's that's part of the mission. And the mission is, to create culture, to create cities, to bring order out of chaos, to join God in redeeming this this broken world, in fixing what has been broken. And we cannot do that without each other. And there's an even deeper reality here that Jesus is referring to that we will come back to. God created biblical marriage so that we can begin to grasp and understand the nature of his love for us. Genesis to Revelation, our relationship to God is consistently described in marriage terms as a bride, us, the church, to a groom, God. And we will come back to that as well. 
So Jesus' rationale here, we just looked at Genesis 1.27. He refers to Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. What reason? If you go back to Genesis 2.24, the reason is companionship. God's creating, God's creating, God's creating. Good, 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 good. And then he comes to man and says, it is not good for man to be alone. And so he creates a woman for companionship, for friendship. Now, we'll come back to this as well, but that is not the only source of companionship and relationship for us is marriage. But it is a part of marriage, to be sure. And then he goes on to say, they're no longer two but one. My friends, this very word for one is the same exact word found in Deuteronomy 6, which faithful Jews said several times a day. It was called the Shema, or the hearing, where they said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The oneness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, somehow is represented in the oneness of husband and wife when they come together as husband and wife. It's mystical, it's remarkable, it's spiritual, it's powerful. And then he goes on to say, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In every wedding ceremony I do, this is an essential part of what I say. When a couple has made their vows to one another, I will always say this because it is true. And oftentimes couples, when they come to me to officiate their ceremony, will want to write their vows. I think that's wonderful. But I demand, I expect in their vows because that's where they're truly marrying one another, there is a statement in there about a covenant commitment for life because that's what marriage is. It is a lifelong commitment. And these are realities of of biblical marriage that Jesus spells out here. But there's another implication that comes with what Jesus is saying here, another reality, and it's this, that marriage is a covenant commitment between one man and one woman for life. Do you realize marriage or some type of marriage relationship is found in every single culture that has ever been discovered? Every single one. Which we could say, In the study of anthropology, well, that goes to show that human beings understand the need to to, to create this type of commitment. No, that's not really what that's saying. And that's certainly not what Scripture is saying. You see, marriage was not created and invented by human culture. It was not created by a government. It was not created or ever defined originally by a state or a county or by J. Messenger. It is defined by the God who created it. Marriage is not a human idea, it's a God idea and a God creation, which again has profound implications for us because this speaks to all sorts of marriages that are being put forward by our culture as as God-blessed marriages. By way of example, Gary referenced this last week, polygamy is on the rise in our culture, having more than one spouse. And he spoke to this last week, but if you were gone, or just by way of remembering, we just finished a Genesis series where we see polygamy begin to enter the picture and being practiced. And a reasonable question is, well, how come it's being talked about if it's not okay? Well, a very important fundamental when you and I are reading our Bibles is the Bible prescribes stuff, it tells us how God wants us to live, but it also describes stuff. And describes life in its entirety, and that doesn't necessarily mean we need to follow that. In fact, every single example of polygamy in the Bible is that it is an absolute train wreck. It's always dysfunctional. It's always disobedient. It always leads to issues and problems. It never works out. And it is described for us to be able to come to that conclusion as we go back to foundational verses like this where God does define what a blessed marriage is. So polygamy is out. And I know this is going to be hard to hear. But marriage between two men or two women is also out. As is every type of same-sex relationship, not just marriage. But we'll come to that in a couple weeks. And I know that's hard to hear. It's not politically correct, but it is biblically correct. 
And it is what we see here. One of the things you will hear, the culture will say is, well, Jesus never had anything to say about all sorts of different types of marriages and sexuality. Uh, no. Right here, he had every opportunity to say what marriage was, and he went all the way back to Genesis and said, this is what marriage is. Jesus spoke very directly and powerfully in defining marriage and very deliberately here. But also something else that's on the rise in our culture is polymorphic relationships where it's also been known as, or called, because it's not new, open relationships where you have two people who are married but they have an agreement that it's okay to have multiple sexual partners and, and that's okay. And Jesus says no. In all these examples of marriage, these are not what God promises to bless and they are not part of his design. This is what his design, a covenant commitment between one man and one woman for life. So this is the only God-blessed, God-designed, God-ordained marriage, and that's exactly Jesus' point, and that's why he says it. So that means marriage is for everybody, right? Think about that. Is marriage for everybody? No. No. It's actually not. And Jesus actually is saying that here. Which brings us to another tough thing to talk about. Because in all this, these are not issues. They are, these are real people. And these are, are many of our experiences, and I'm, I'm very, very aware of that. But it brings us to the issue of divorce. If you have or are walking that journey, it is in no way my intent to add to your pain. You've had enough of that. And that's not the heart behind talking about this at all. Divorce does happen. It can happen. And it brings with it a lot of heartbreak. And in that culture, there were some who were advocating divorce as a first resort rather than a last resort. And in God's design and in God's intention, Divorce is always a last resort. But that's not true for what our culture tells us. On any given day, when I flip on sports radio to hear about how my Seahawks or Ducks or Blazers have been doing, there will always be this ad that runs that comes up that says, hey, call 1-800-DIVORCE if you want to get a divorce. The first consult is free and just for a, a, a minuscule amount of money, we'll get this thing done for you and we'll make it happen. Divorce is a first resort. But in God's economy, in God's design, divorce is always a last resort. And it is something that is to be entered into very, very sparingly and rarely. But the reality is sometimes the doctor prescribes it. Because divorce has been compared to an amputation. It's dire, it is a last resort, it's profoundly painful. It's not something to be lightly entered into. And sometimes it is what happens. And it's a reality. If there was a doctor in town who you and I went to go see, who every time we went to go see him said, yep, the way we're going to treat this is we're going to amputate, would you go to them very often? No, no. Someone like that, we would run out of town. And we should run anyone out of town who advocates that divorce is a first option, that it isn't the fix to, to your problems and to your pain. It, it just creates more problems and more pain, but it does happen. And it's a complicated issue. And therefore, we've written a position paper on this that deals much more comprehensively with the dimensions of this than I just have, because there's just not enough time. Please pick that up after the service and as you think about your questions with that but the disciples hear this and this is the conclusion they come to but not necessarily in the way Jesus intended they basically say hey okay if this is what marriage is if it's this kind of commitment if there is no escape clause then why would anyone get married and it kind of misses the point because how does Jesus respond to them he goes right into talking about singleness and he does this remarkable thing. He says, marriage is good and singleness is good. Now in that culture, if you didn't eventually get married at some point, 
there was a lot of shame attached to that. People didn't look at you the same. There was a stigma with being single, especially in honor-shame societies. And what Jesus was saying there, it was profoundly countercultural. No. Marriage is good without diluting the value of marriage, but so is singleness. Now think about our culture. Does our culture value singleness? Let's get a little more personal. Do we as a church value singleness? Many years ago, some of our single folks here at Grace very necessarily came to me and said, Pastor Jay, can we give you some input? And I always want to welcome your input. And said, yeah, what's going on? He said, well, do you realize that in your sermons, when you illustrate them, when you talk about relationships, all you talk about are married people? I said, you know what, you're right. And I ask your forgiveness for that. And sometimes we as the church capital C, and I will take responsibility for this in my part too, have completely devalued and excluded our singles with how we've talked about relationships. And I ask your forgiveness for that. And for several years now, I have tried to be much more deliberate in valuing both because God does. There isn't something wrong with you if you are single. It isn't wrong if you never want to get married. It isn't wrong if you don't want to get remarried. Both marriage and singleness are valued in the family of God. And one of the things I appreciate about our church is we have a number of community groups that have singles and married folk in them. Married folk, you need singles. Singles, you need married folk. We need each other. It's called community. No one gets excluded. We, we all need each other and we need to be in each other's lives. And Jesus very clearly establishes this here, that marriage and singleness are equally valuable. But I wonder if there isn't something else going on in our culture when it comes to this. We've talked about the reality that idolatry is taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. And I wonder if we have begun to do that with marriage. Because what is our culture is doing? Our culture is purposefully redefining marriage so it can be accessible and available to absolutely everyone. But if we stop to ask ourselves, what's behind that? What is it we're looking for from marriage? What are we expecting a marriage relationship will do for us and give to us? Could it be that we have so idolized marriage that we expect it to be something and to do something for us it was never intended to do? And I really do believe that's what's going on in our culture. Yes, God created man for woman and woman for man. He created woman for companionship to man and vice versa, but that is not the only place you can find deep, significant friendship, companionship, and relationship, but we've made it that way. And I think in some ways, we've elevated marriage to be something it was never intended to be. Marriage, I think, in many ways, has become one of the dog biscuits in our culture. Truth to the reality that marriage is special, that it is significant, that there is an intimacy there that is unique, but the only path to relational intimacy, the only path to true friendship and companionship, and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, we are called to have deep friendship, deep community, deep companionship with people other than our spouses if we happen to be married. And we've taken things even further from there and we've sexualized those relationships. In fact, you'll hear people say, in these other forms of marriage, if you deny me marriage, you are denying me the expression of my sexuality and I will not be a fulfilled person. Okay, let's go there for a minute. And I know this is tender and it's an affair of the heart and I get that, but Jesus then was unfulfilled because he never was fulfilled sexually. Paul, who was also single, was never fulfilled, didn't have a vibrant, fulfilled, significant life because he never was fulfilled sexually? Really? Do we really believe that? 
because it's, it's simply not true. But again, that is one of the things that's being said out there, which leads us to this. Someone asked this question. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. If you know you are going to marry your partner, boyfriend or girlfriend, but are not married yet, is it still wrong to have sex with them? There were 57 of you who said, yeah, I want to hear the answer to this question. And we'll come back to that question in in just a second. When it comes to marriage, it's really important to understand that marriage or even sex itself is not going to complete you and it's not going to complete me. You see, Jamie was made complete long before she met me and long before we got married. I compliment her. I have different strengths and abilities and passions. I'm, I'm different than her, and we're a great team together, but I do not complete her. Jesus is the one who completes her. She was complete before she knew me. She was complete before she married me. And so what is this saying? And for the person who posted this question, Thank you for asking it. Thank you for putting it out there. This is assuming, for starters, you are going to marry your boyfriend or girlfriend, which isn't a given, but let's just say, yeah, you are going to marry them. So why not have sex with them now? Well, we really have already answered this, have we not? How does Jesus define marriage? Where does he say the only God-blessed, God-designed, fulfilling place, truly, where sex is? is going to happen is in a covenant relationship between a man and woman for life. Not to mention the number of verses that talk about this is brokenness, this is not what God wants for you and me. In fact, Jesus will say in Matthew 5, you've had sex with someone long before you get in bed with them. You've had sex with them in your mind. So, Is there another dimension to this? And I absolutely believe there is. Let's look at this question through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is this relationship saying, if it does happen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about? It's saying that God, this boyfriend, has the church, this girlfriend, who he's gonna hook up, shack up, and sleep with and probably eventually leave after he's used her and taken advantage of her and fulfilled himself with her. He's going to get bored and move on. Now, obviously, that doesn't have to happen, but it is a common narrative in our culture. So is that the gospel? Because remember, in every relationship you have in your life and mine, we are declaring the gospel or we are declaring something else. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is about God, the groom, who pledges himself completely to his bride, the church. He will love her. He will serve her. He will protect her. He will provide for her. He will be faithful to her. And eventually, in the highest act of love, according to Jesus, he will lay down his life for her. Isn't that the gospel? And that, my friends, is biblical marriage. How you and I are living our lives declares the gospel. Someday, in my worst dream, I'm going to wake up on a Sunday morning. I've forgotten that I'm preaching. I'm 15 minutes late. I'm going to come in, be totally unprepared, and I'm going to have to get up and preach without having prepared for it. Pastors have bad dreams about these things, just so you know. Because I value you and you have commissioned me and blessed me to be able to spend time studying God's word and preparing. So what would I do if I showed up and that happened? On a Sunday morning, I'd probably preach without preparation from the book of Hosea. Because of all the sermons I've done here at Grace Through the Years, that's probably one of my top three favorites. 
because it is a picture of the gospel and the very things we are talking about here this morning. God asks Hosea to do the unthinkable and he asks him to marry a prostitute knowingly and she is going to cheat on him, she's going to use him, she's going to betray him over and over again and eventually she's gonna abandon him and leave him and he's gonna go after her and he's gonna try to win and woo her back and she's gonna put him off, she's gonna disregard him, she's going to displace him, she's gonna say no, she's gonna continue to cheat on him and betray him and he's gonna keep coming back to her and coming back to her until finally she's been used literally sexually by everyone in the village, she's now up for sale as a slave because no one wants her, no one will pay for her, most if not all the men in the crowd have already used her and want nothing to do with her and he will empty his pockets and give everything he has in order to buy her back after she has betrayed him, after she has left him, after she has prostituted herself over and over again. He still wants her back and he will give absolutely everything in order to win her back. Who is that talking about? That's my story. And that's yours. This God despite my brokenness and yours, loves me and gives everything in order to win me back to himself as his bride. And so as our worship team comes and as we respond to these realities, today we celebrate communion together. And communion underscores these very realities we've been talking about. It looks forward to a future day where if you know and love Jesus Christ, if you are part of his collective bride, the church, someday we are gonna be united to him as our groom. And so we're gonna distribute these elements now and I'm gonna ask you to hold on to these and we will celebrate what this means for us here in just a little bit. But I'm gonna ask and invite eight of you to come forward to serve our church family here this morning. No experience required. I will tell you what to do once you get up there. But can eight of you step forward? You're gonna space yourselves out two per section and you're gonna hand out these elements and once everyone's been served, we'll celebrate communion together. So there's a beautiful picture in God's word of what we celebrate here together. Communion really only has meaning if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. All are welcome to participate in this, but it only has meaning if you know the Lord. Because what you hold in your hand is a reminder of what he's done for each one of us through his death, burial, and resurrection. He gives us new life. He makes us new from the inside out. And yes, collectively, we then become his bride. And there is a picture in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, of what our future holds for us. And those elements you hold in your hands look to this in the future as well. It's when we will be joined to God as his bride and him as our groom. And there are some scholars who believe that what I'm about to read to you is gonna take place for over a thousand years. It's gonna be a celebration and a party like we've never experienced before when we're finally with him. And this is how it's described. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of washing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear and fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So let's celebrate what he's done for us, that he's with us now, and what the future holds for us as his bride. Let's remember that together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the promise that we have, that you have given us your presence through your Holy Spirit that someday we will be united to you as a bride is to her husband. And God, we long and look forward to that day. But we thank you that it's you who has first loved us. And because you have loved us, we can love other people in the same way. And God, I thank you that this is a generous church in so many ways. 
And as we gather these resources for our fellowship fund now, we pray that you will truly enable us to use these in a way that helps other people because we all need help at some point. And thank you, because of the giving of this church family, we can help. So God, please bless these resources now in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope that is true for you. Between the, our, our time of worship here and when I finished preaching, I had the opportunity to go and look at the questions that you're posting, and they're such excellent questions. And we just want to remind you that this will remain open for you to submit questions until noon tomorrow for your benefit and for the benefit of our online community who will be listening to this as well. But I want to encourage you too. We have prayer teams off to the sides. We'd love to pray with you, talk with you. And in the back there on a resource table, we have position papers on divorce, remarriage, um, really what we've, singleness, all the things we've talked about here this morning. So we hope that you'll grab some of those as well. And we just want you to know we're all in process. This is a safe place. And the nature of some of the questions you're asking, they're so personal and so significant. And I just want to invite you once again, if you want to sit down and talk with anyone of us, we will avail ourselves and make ourselves available to you. This is a safe place to be in process with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this song that we just sang is just so profoundly beautiful. And I want to show you where some of this imagery comes from in Scripture. We talked about the reality that Scripture from Genesis to Revelation depicts our relationship with God as a bride to a groom. And this is also found in Isaiah 61, where it says this, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We are his bride. He is our groom. So let's now go live like that in all of our relationships as we go from here. And as we prepare to do so, if you're our guest, we'd love to see you at next just down the hallway. So let me pray blessing over all of us. Lord, thank you again for this time to seek you together, to look to your word for answers and hope. And Lord, we thank you that you are the God who is at work among us and in us. And we pray that as we go from here, we will trust you and obey you and follow you and believe you for the blessing that you promised to us. We thank you, God, for your goodness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And we hope to see you next week. Go and live for him. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.